When I was in fifth grade, everyone in my class had to choose some scientific principle to demonstrate for us. I think it was all in preparation for a school-wide science fair. Anyways, one girl, her name was Jamie, she did something pretty cool. Something that I can still so vividly describe some 10 years later. With just a few household items, things like rubbing alcohol, water, and salt, Jamie showed us how to extract the DNA from a banana. It blew my mind at the time, and honestly, still does now. That cloudy sort of nothingness told the banana what to be. How yellow its peel was, how sweet it tasted, how easily it bruised, how quickly it ripened. This sort of experiment can also be done with strawberries, and both fruits share 60% of their DNA with humans. If you tuned in last time to part 1, you might not be surprised by that fact. Though, it may interest you to know that we share 99% of our DNA with lettuce. The reason why we're 60% genetically identical to bananas and strawberries, and 99% genetically identical to chimpanzees and lettuce, is because so much of the DNA is really just the basic instructions for keeping living organisms alive. As a quick refresher, genes are the units of heredity. They're collections of nucleotide sequences that contain all the blueprints needed to build, well, you. Remember the nucleotide Lego block analogy? Nucleotides are what make up DNA. All these nucleotide building blocks encode for amino acids in proteins, which at their most basic structure are like beads on a string. Now that we've got that biological housekeeping out of the way, let's move into the legal side of things by further diving into our case, AMP versus Myriad. Part two, the question. We ended the last episode after introducing Myriad Genetics, the company at the center of this case who held the patent on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. By the way, from here on out, we'll be focusing on the patent for BRCA1, as it was often the center of discussion during the later court cases. But remember that there were two genes and multiple patents. Both BRCA1 and BRCA2 are known as oncogenes because some mutations in these genes can cause cancer. Specifically, if you recall, these two genes make a type of tumor-suppressing protein that's important for preventing cancer. So when there are mutations in BRCA1 or BRCA2, these very important proteins might not function normally, which can cause a serious cancer risk. The link between genetics and certain diseases like cancer is what many people rely on for genetic testing. If you have a family history of a condition that's known to be heritable, your doctor might order these genetic tests to determine whether or not you're at risk. To explain this process, here's Aaron Nordquist, a licensed genetic counselor. So there's a lot of different reasons why someone might seek genetic testing. Um, so I'd say it can either be because they have um, an ongoing issue that they want to investigate further or based on familial risk. Genetic testing is being used to better understand what someone's risk is for a health concern. Um, and so if we identify that someone is at an increased risk, a lot of times we can do things to change their management to be either more preventative um, or reduce risk in some way. The most common sample types that are used are a blood sample. Um, but also saliva and cheek swabs. In short, um, there's a series of 
chemical reactions and treatments that we do on the sample to help break open those cell types and release the DNA. And then we make a bunch of copies of that DNA so that we can analyze it um, in the lab and see if there's anything there that looks different from what we expect to see. But the cool thing about genetics is that our tests are getting better all the time. So the tests we have today didn't even exist a few years ago. Genetic testing and sequencing are crucial for patients to get the answers that they need, and they can also be profitable for the companies that conduct them. In 2022, Myriad Genetics reported $678.4 million in total revenue, a number that was down 2% from the previous year, but one that still gives you an idea why the company, and others like it, would have sought a gene patent so earnestly. Myriad's BRCA1 patent covers, quote, an isolated polynucleotide comprising all or a portion of the BRCA1 locus, or of a mutated BRCA1 locus, as well as methods and kits to detect these polynucleotides. And because genetic testing involves looking at the actual DNA sequences of the genes in question, Myriad Genetics held the sole legal claim to test BRCA1 with their BRCA analysis test. Their patents, though, also encouraged investors to supply Myriad with the money it needed to sequence BRCA2 and to create a diagnostic test for it as well. The exclusivity of Myriad's patents, therefore, was important for the company, as it gave them the financial support to pursue research that would undoubtedly help many patients and families. But how were other researchers affected by this exclusivity? At the University of Pennsylvania, Doctors Haig Kazazian and Arupa Ganguly created their own tests to screen for BRCA1 and 2. They provided these tests to around 500 women a year, but had to stop when they received cease and desist letters from Myriad. Dr. Kazazian was later informed that he could only conduct academic research on BRCA1 and 2. Cease and desist letters were also sent to Yale University, where scientists at the DNA Diagnostics Lab had been conducting BRCA1 and 2 genetic testing. When they tried to get permission from Myriad to screen for a type of mutation that the company themselves were not conducting, their request was denied. At Columbia University, Dr. Wendy Chung was unable to even tell research subjects in her studies the results of their BRCA tests. The same thing happened with Dr. Harry Oster of New York University. Many genetic counselors just wanted to be able to choose a company, and their patients had a lot to say too. Myriad's test was reportedly faulty as much as 12% of the time amongst patients with a significant family history of cancer. The company says, though, that few patients fall into that category. Some patients in general, though, received inconclusive or positive results and needed a second, independent test from another company to confirm the findings. But that other company did not, or rather could not, exist. Lisbeth Siriani, a 43-year-old single mother of one daughter, was diagnosed with breast cancer, which prompted her to undergo a double mastectomy. Because of her and her family's history of cancer, her doctors and genetic counselors suggested that she get BRCA1 and 2 testing to consider surgery in case she was at risk of developing ovarian cancer. Lisbeth was insured by MassHealth, a Medicaid program for low-income individuals in Massachusetts. But because Myriad did not accept her insurance, on the grounds that the reimbursement level would be too low, 
and because she could not afford the $3,225 test out of pocket, she was unable to get the test at Myriad. Similar insurance issues affected 48-year-old Patrice Fortune, 52-year-old Vicki Thomason, and 41-year-old Kathleen Raker. To their credit though, Myriad had tried to work with Medicaid for years to get a participating provider status in 25 states, which would have allowed them to offer the BRCA1 and 2 tests to Medicaid patients like Lisbeth Seriani, but the company had been unable to do so. Additionally, Myriad's financial assistance program provided testing to eligible low-income and uninsured patients. The company also offered free testing through the nonprofit Cancer Resource Foundation, for which Lisbeth may have been eligible. Ultimately, though, she had to wait 18 months before she was able to get tested thanks to a financial grant. And so, by 2009, the gene patent debate continued, as it had for more than two decades. But that year, on May 12th, the Southern District Court of New York received notice from lawyers with the Public Patent Foundation, or PubPat, and the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, of their intent to bring a lawsuit against Myriad Genetics. Oh, I think it was high time that somebody do something about it. Dr. Uta Frank. Everybody who had wanted to do a test for BRCA on a patient around the world had to pay them, and the test was like 3000 something dollars, and it just wasn't right. The ACLU took interest in the case in 2006, three years before the suit was filed. After the issue of gene patenting was brought to their attention by science advisor Tanya Simoncelli. Of all the holders of gene patents, Myriad Genetics was chosen for several reasons. Firstly, no one had enforced their patents quite like Myriad did. Bioethicists Jacob Shurkoff and Henry Greeley write that the majority of other holders broadly licensed their gene patents on reasonable terms and or did not actively enforce the patents at all. But as we just saw with the cease and desist letters sent to researchers, Myriad was considered to be especially aggressive in protecting their claims on the BRCA1 and 2 genes. The second reason Myriad was chosen was because their patents covered the breast cancer genes. Other companies, patents, and diseases were considered, but the PubPat and ACLU lawyers reasoned that most people were affected by cancer in some way, whether that diagnosis came for loved ones or for themselves. Targeting the BRCA1 and 2 genes, therefore, would make headlines and increase public support. The ACLU and PubPat lawyers represented the plaintiffs, who were determined to overturn the legality of gene patents. They included researchers from NYU, Columbia, and Yale, while many other scientists were represented by the American College of Medical Genetics, the American Society for Clinical Pathology, and the College of American Pathologists. Other plaintiffs included the individual patients we mentioned earlier, as well as patient advocacy groups like Our Bodies, Ourselves, and Breast Cancer Action. Here's Dr. Crystal Redman, the executive director of Breast Cancer Action, on why it was so important for the organization to join the case. The test um, offered by Marriott was, at the time, the only commercially available test in the U.S. So let's just sit there. Like, it was the only commercially available test in the U.S. And not enough people could really get access to the important information about their genes and cancer risk. We were determined to set a critical legal precedence, um, and it, we set it thin, and we continue to say it, that corporations cannot own human genes. We put people before profit, always. In addition to these other plaintiffs, 
It was the Association for Molecular Pathology, or the AMP, who signed on as the lead plaintiff in the case. Many of the AMP's members were affected by gene patents because they hindered or stopped them altogether from conducting effective research in patient care. Here's lawyer and doctor Roger Klein, who served on the AMP's Professional Relations Committee during this time. It, it should be understood as an organization, we didn't have anything specifically against Myriad. From the, from the scientific or molecular standpoint, our belief was that these patents obstructed genetic testing, that, that people, our members, should be free to test uh, genes. We understood there were patents on methods where somebody actually came in and invented a type of instrument. But we, we didn't believe that this fundamental natural material should be able to be patented and that the, the patent holders could, could exclude everybody, as in a sense, get a monopoly on testing particular genes. And we knew that would cause huge problems in the future. The plaintiffs brought their suit against three defendants. First, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, who granted the BRCA1 and 2 gene patents. Second, Myriad Genetics. And finally, the University of Utah Research Foundation. If you recall, Myriad founder Mark Skolnick was first a geneticist at the University of Utah, which was among the owners of the patents. In total, the plaintiffs challenged 15 claims across seven patents. But to really understand this case, I think it's best to focus on just one of these patents. Patent 5747282, which was granted on May 5, 1998, and covered the 17Q-linked breast and ovarian cancer susceptibility gene. Something to note, though, is that the plaintiffs were not seeking to challenge all 20 of this patent's claims. Only claims 1, 2, 5, 6, and 7 which dealt with naturally occurring genomic gDNA in its isolated form. Here's lawyer and doctor Roger Klein. When we isolate DNA, what we're really doing is we're extracting DNA. And that means um, using a bunch of chemicals or sound or whatever to break up cells and, and, and get rid of the extraneous material so that you, you're, you know, you're left with, with the DNA. The plaintiffs were also challenging that final 20th claim, which covered a method to screen for potential cancer drugs that could help restore the BRCA1 gene's normal function. Now that we've gone over the issues at hand, let's meet the attorneys debating them in court. The plaintiffs retained lawyers from the ACLU, led by Christopher A. Hansen and Sandra Park, as well as Daniel Rabicher from the Public Patent Foundation. On the defendant's or respondent's side, representing the Federal Patent Office was Preet Bharara, who was, at the time, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Meanwhile, a team of lawyers from multinational law firm Jones Day would be representing both Myriad Genetics and the University of Utah. Presiding over the proceedings was Judge Robert Sweet, who served as the senior judge of the U.S. Southern District Court of New York for nearly 30 years, from 1991 until his death at age 96 in 2019. Nine years before his passing, Judge Sweet listened as the plaintiffs and respondents in AMP versus the United States Patent and Trademark Office argued their case. There were two major points of contention. First, how did Myriad Genetics BRCA1 and 2 patents affect testing on these two genes? The AMP was clear. These patents were actively preventing many patients from receiving the highest quality breast cancer genetic testing. 
the plaintiffs, including the AMP, argued that they were blocked from offering a second confirmatory test as well as more comprehensive and newer testing methods. So, as a result, many patients were unable to properly prepare for the possibility of breast and ovarian cancer later on. This was troubling, especially considering that breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed type of cancer and is the second leading cause of cancer death in women. Additionally, the plaintiffs noted that there were deficiencies in Myriad's genetic tests. They specifically charged that early on, Myriad's BRCA1 and 2 tests failed to reveal all known mutations in these genes, which may have caused false negative results. Myriad pushed back against these reported deficiencies, insisting that they offered the gold standard for BRCA1 and 2 testing, and that they were constantly working to improve these tests. The company also contended that independent researchers confirmed the superiority of their BRCA1 and 2 tests. However, in the eyes of the AMP, this was a farce. In their opinion, there was not enough independent research done on Myriad's test, particularly regarding the VUS result. VUS, or variants of uncertain significance, are detected mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes with unknown effects. The plaintiffs said that these VUS results were, quote, reported disproportionately for members of minority groups. They argued that by restricting access to its database on VUS results, Myriad had made it so difficult for outside study to be done on why these unknown VUS results seemed to be more common amongst minority patients. Myriad countered that they have been working to determine the cause of this discrepancy. The company not only made critical data available to researchers, but the reporting rate of unknown results had decreased by as much as 50%. Despite both sides' impassioned arguments, though, the Southern District Court of New York eventually concluded that the effects of gene patents on genetic testing could not be resolved in the current legal proceedings. Now, moving on to the second question. In general, what kind of impact did gene patents have on scientific and medical advancement? On this issue, the Southern District Court found, quote, that there existed a deep disagreement between the parties. And that was no exaggeration. The way the AMP saw it, gene patents were suffocating scientific innovation. Science cannot exist, they argued, without freely and openly sharing data. This was especially true for genetics. Remember the Human Genome Project? The plaintiffs reminded the court of the project's Bermuda principles, that in their shared quest to decode the secrets of life, public scientists, as well as several private companies, recognized how important it was to allow free access to the genome. In addition, Dr. Fiona Murray discovered that as much as 20% of human genes were considered intellectual property. She also found that there were longer time lags for publishing papers on patented gene sequences, concluding that, yes, gene patents were negatively affecting knowledge. Dr. Mildred Cho's study found that gene patents were also negatively affecting patients. She found that 53% of surveyed lab directors chose not to develop a new clinical test because of an existing gene patent or license. According to amicus briefs filed, many other scientists not directly involved in the lawsuit agreed with the AMP's beliefs that gene patents were unnecessary or even hostile to scientific advancement. So then, what did the other side of the amicus aisle have to say? Myriad Genetics was backed by intellectual property attorneys and the Biotechnology Industry Organization, or BIO, who emphasized how vital gene patents were 
not just to their own livelihoods, but to patients too. A year before the suit, a study published by the BIO in 2009 found that a majority of their biotech member companies had projects that were still in the early stages of development, which required substantial R&D investment. This could cost well over $100 million. According to Myriad, the federal government just did not have this kind of money available for initial research funding, which meant that companies had to turn to patents and private investments to fund their studies. If you recall, Myriad themselves were only able to develop a genetic test for BRCA2 after securing funding from investors following their patenting of BRCA1. In terms of the exclusivity of BRCA1 and 2 genes faced by interested researchers, Myriad Genetics brought up what they called the quid pro quo of the patent system. In order to secure a patent in the first place, you have to describe the patented invention in enough detail to let others know what you're doing and how you're doing it. Therefore, Myriad argued, these patents were actually allowing research to flourish by describing in detail the DNA sequences. The company pointed to the nearly 9,000 published papers on the BRCA1 and 2 genes as proof of their long-standing policy on supporting academic research. Now, after hearing both sides, take a moment to think about how you decide if you were hearing this case. I'll give you a few seconds. Did you agree with Judge Robert Sweet, who, on March 29, 2010, sided with the AMP that DNA is not patentable even in its non-naturally occurring, isolated, and cDNA forms, thus ruling against both of Myriad's claims, one claim on the BRCA1 and 2 genes, and another on methods used. His opinion stretched 200-plus pages, and also spared the US Patent and Trademark Office from the future litigation he knew was coming on the basis that invalidating Myriad's claims in relation to U.S. Code 35 Section 101, which deals with patent eligibility, did not directly involve the office's role in granting the patents. In his opinion, Judge Sweet wrote that different forms of DNA are all the same because of how unique they are. I know, I was confused at first too. But what he's saying is that DNA is the only known compound that can carry genetic information. Therefore, no matter if that DNA is in a human's body, or if you isolate it in a lab, that DNA still serves as a unit of heredity. In Judge Sweet's own words, it's the preservation of this defining characteristic of DNA in its native and isolated forms that led him to the only reasonable conclusion he saw. DNA is DNA, no matter which way you slice it, and it cannot be patented. Obviously, Myriad was less than enthused about his conclusion. The defendants appealed Judge Sweet's decision to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. On April 4, 2011, over a year after Judge Sweet's decision, the appellate court heard oral arguments in Round 2 of AMP v. Myriad. Both sides argued similarly to what they had last time. Four months later, the appellate court affirmed in part and reversed in part. Judge Alan Laurie wrote the majority ruling for the court and agreed with Judge Robert Sweet of the Lower Southern District Court that Myriad's method claims could not be patented. However, Myriad still scored a major victory because the appellate court ruled in their favor on the matter of isolated DNA, which they believed could be patented. 
In the ruling, the appellate court cited Diamond v. Chakrabarty. In this 1980 Supreme Court case, microbiologist Ananda Chakrabarty had genetically engineered a type of bacteria that could break down crude oil. When he tried to patent his creation, he was rejected by the patent office, who told him that living organisms could not be patented. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Chakrabarty because his bacterium was not naturally occurring, so therefore it was patent eligible. The appellate court reasoned similarly. Because the isolated genomic DNA was not found in nature, Myriad's patents on the isolated BRCA DNA still stood. As you'd expect, the plaintiffs and the AMP challenged the decision and asked the Supreme Court to review the case. The Supreme Court vacated the appellate court's decision and told them to rehear the entire case again. The real punchline is, though, the appellate court ruled 2-1 to one the same way it did a year ago. But this time, in addition to the Diamond v. Chakrabarty case, they cited Mayo v. Prometheus, which had been decided in March 2012 amidst Round 2 of Round 2 of AMP v. Myriad. In this Supreme Court case, Prometheus Labs patented steps for testing drug dosages to treat gastrointestinal diseases. They sued the Mayo Clinic when the latter tried to use their own, albeit similar, test. Again, here's lawyer and doctor Roger Klein. So they basically took biological relationships and they structured them as processes, as stepwise processes, but they weren't really processes. It was just a means of transferring or, or framing a biological relationship. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the Mayo Clinic because Prometheus's steps were, quote, merely instructions to apply the laws of nature. The appellate court used this decision to back up their original decision against the patent eligibility of Myriad's DNA analysis method claims. As they had done over a year and a half ago, the plaintiffs once again requested the Supreme Court to look over the case. And finally, both sides would get to have their day in the highest court of the land. How would the nine justices rule? The scientific, legal, and medical communities would be upended by their decision, whatever it would be. We'll discuss the Supreme Court's landmark ruling next time in the third and final part of the battle over you.